At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. God, would you give us ears to hear this morning what it is that your spirit is saying to us? Would you give us courage to hear hard things? Would you make us um, open to how you might be inviting us to to change? And would you remind us that your invitation, your call to change, to to leave old things behind, it's your love that calls us. It's the love that we already have in you. That we're not, our response isn't an earning of your love. But it's rather, it's a response to love. To lead us this morning. Love you. Amen. All right. Hi. How's everyone doing this morning? Quiet? I locked myself out of my office, so it's all... It's interesting, I was going to say it's all uphill from here, but that's not exactly, but then all downhill's not good either, so I don't know, what am I, it's it's all good from here, and then I feel like I'm Michael Scott, and that is not someone I want to be in life, Scott's tots, if you know it, you know it, oof, Uh, all right, well, good morning, welcome to Mercy Commons, my name's Daniel, it's good to to be here all together um, this week. However, if you're on Zoom or if you're in the room, if you are on Zoom, I apologize for the email that was never sent. It got sent about 10.15, so that was my fault. I'd never hit the final send. 
Ever do that and you get like three emails in your outbox or your draft box? Oof. Um, we are uh, here. We're continuing our journey in, in Lent, um, the Lenten season, which is um, just very simply about getting ready for Easter so that when we get to Easter Sunday, we haven't for the first type time thought about, you know, what, what is this resurrection that follows crucifixion? What does it mean? What's it all mean? And, you know, that we're mindful that um, this following Jesus is a daily picking up of our cross. And that's significantly, completely part of it. And we don't want to skip that, especially don't want to skip that on our way to Easter. So um, we've spent the, the last couple weeks thinking about uh, the first week of Lent, we thought about um, bread and how the idea, you know, we, we frequently fight with each other over resources. The Hebrew word um, for bread is, uh, is the root word for the Hebrew word for war. Bread is lechem, and um, war is milchama. They're, they're, they're the same words, the same chunk of it, and showing sort of this understanding that this is what we fight about. This is what we struggle over um, between each other is resources. Are there enough? Will we get it? So we talked about that the first week. The second week, we talked about what does it mean last week. It was what does it mean to be safe? What does it mean to be secure people? What are the things that we look to, think about, pursue to obtain safety for ourselves? Is it zeros and ones in some bank account? Uh, Is it pieces of paper on the wall that tell other people how great we are, how prepped we are um, for it? Is it our job? Um, Is it our family? What are the things that we look to that we, we put our faith in to make us secure and then recognized that, um, all of, all of the things are, almost all these things are good things. Um, but if they end up being the place that gives us peace and security, um, something's off, something's wrong. And so this week I want to, um, I think the core idea of what we're going to talk about this week is this idea of repentance or change. But I've, um, I've titled the sermon, Yeah, But, Repentance, Heresy, and a Parable. All right, so we've got some things to talk about, um, and what I want to invite you to do is open up your Bibles, uh, whether you're here or at home, to Luke 13, uh, have it open in front of you. We're going to start at verse 1, and um, you know, it's never bad to check my math. Um, it's a joke, we're not going to do any math this morning. Um, so the very first phrase of Luke 13 is this kind of throwaway um, stage direction. I don't know. You get you come to these lines and you're like, that doesn't mean anything. Let's get to the good stuff, right? I think I talk about this quite a bit. How we love to rush through scripture to the cool things where somebody gets healed or somebody gets reprimanded or somebody is shown generous love. And these are great things. These are things we should go rushing for. But sometimes, maybe a lot of the time, when we move to those too quickly, we've missed something that's like, whoa that sets the stage. We miss the very important context that whatever's happening is happening within. So we have here uh, the very first couple words of uh, chapter 13, verse 1. At that very time. Really riveting, right? I mean... Was it like lunchtime? Is it second breakfast? You know, what's, what, what is this all about? Well, what, what at that very time is pushing us, reminding us to do as we read this is to remember what's happening, to look back to what's happened just before this. 
You don't want to always, reading scripture in like uh, finite chunks can be dangerous. It's, you know, can be, not always. Um, so at that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans who Pilate had, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Well, what is this very time that they're, that they're telling us, that the, that the gospel writer is telling us happened? Well, it comes, and if you look, you know, from 1249 through the end of 12, we have Jesus talking to them about, um, about true peace, what real peace is all about, um, and, and recognizing division, where we you know, like peace, peace in the, the imagination of Scripture isn't calm. It isn't nobody's talking about. Every, it's just you know sweep it under the rug. It's not that kind of peace. It's the peace that has in mind to to think about the different tensions and the problems that are in the space and actually seeking um, resolution for those things. It's that's what it is. It's wholeness. It's not stillness. Stillness can be part of it, um, but that's not the goal. The goal isn't to to to, uh, to shut up the naysayers. I was looking. We got one. Sorry, don't say that word. It's not a good word. Um, I shouldn't have said it. But okay. So so this conversation about what peace is, and then it moves into this. And this is in uh, verse fifty-four. Jesus is talking about discernment. I, I think discernment is probably the hardest thing in life. Uh, right, especially when you, as you, I don't know, I'm 41 and I'm still waiting to grow up. Um, you, like as a child, I thought adults had all the answers, right? I looked at the people who were older than me, I was like, they got it figured out, they got it all together. I can't wait to be like that. And then I'm here and guess what? I don't know, right? Half the time I'm like, well, this is just the best of my worst options, Discernment, figuring out when to move, when, like, not actual move, but like, you know, when to and when not to, uh, when to say something. When should you actually confront a person and when should you zip your lip? You know, some of us probably, it's, it's like some of us need to learn how to zip our lip. That's what I should have said. Uh, some, some of us need to learn how to zip our lip and some of us need to learn how to speak up. But this this question of discernment. How do we know? How do you figure these things out? How do you do, do justice in a world where sometimes all we have are bad options? So it's from, it's from a conversation about real peace to a conversation about discernment. And then it's this really like practical thing where Jesus says, listen, if you've got conflict, settle with the person who you have conflict with before they take you to a judge. And then if, here's the problem, you can... You can buy your debt for pennies if you deal with it before you get to the judge. If you get to the judge, the judge might put the whole thing on your shoulder, hand you over to the bailiff, the officer, and toss you in prison until you've paid off your debt in a debtor's prison. Solve it before it gets to that point. Don't wait to solve your problems to confront the things that are difficult. Don't wait until somebody makes you do it. So this is all of the stuff that's coming up before. And then it says, and at this very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. And when you get there, you're like, why? Like, what does that have possibly to do with what Jesus is saying? And as we read it with that in mind, here's the conclusion at least that I come to, is they're trying to not talk about the thing that's hard for them to talk about. They don't want to talk about paying back their debts. They don't want to be told to be responsible. Nobody wants, I mean, nobody really wants to be responsible, right? We want the privilege. 
We want the keys to the car, but we don't want to pay the bill. So Jesus is talking to them about all these things, and they're like, yeah, but did you hear about what happened over there? And, 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 and how bad must those people have been for that to have been their story? Jesus goes through this long conversation, and then these people change the topic because they don't want to talk about it anymore because it's not a fun topic. It's not fun to talk about our, our responsibility for peace in our world and in our lives. It's not fun for us to think about being accountable for that or, or, or recognizing and being honest that I actually don't know what's going on half the time. I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out, right? Nobody wants to. We, that's hard to talk about. Or, or our debts, right? Like, and you even think about that, like, I mean, when Jesus teaches people to pray, he says, you know, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And when Jesus talks about debt, he's not just talking about what you owe Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover, whatever every month. He's not talking about your, he's not talking about your dollar bills, although it could be that, right? The conversation is about what we owe each other. The debts, how we harm, how we ignore, how we take advantage, how we're taken advantage of. He's talking about what does it mean to be, to be in relationship with each other. And if you think about it, most like problems boil down to relationship problems. Maybe in fact all problems are fundamentally relationship problems, conflicts. You want this, they want that. When you want this, they want that. Ever been in that situation where it's just like, ugh. So this is the thing they're pushing back on. They don't want to talk about. And part of this is, um, is because we, we chafe against accountability. It's natural. Like, it's pretty normal for us to do the yeah, but. What about? Did you see how bad they are? And Jesus is saying, no, let's talk about you. So what follows is, you know, I read here is an attempt to rebuff Jesus. Uh, Yeah, but what about these Galileans? They suffered pretty bad at the hands of Pilate. How bad must they have been? We're not that bad because nobody's doing that to us, right? This idea that bad things happen to bad people, which you actually find it's part of the, it's part of the really interesting conversation of scripture is you have, it's not, it doesn't, like scripture argues with itself, There are places where it talks about how if you do good, good will happen to you. And then the Psalms, basically all of the Psalms, most of them are like, why do bad things happen to good people? And it's this like back and forth, right? And so when Jesus hears this, he's so smart. I mean, it's just like when you... He doesn't fall for it. He doesn't get sucked in. He doesn't accept the... My therapist tells me this all the time. He should write a book. Uh, should be called The Things He's Told Daniel. Um, <laughs> if you don't like the way the table's set, reset it. Jesus rejects the premise. He doesn't get sucked into their argument, right? Instead of being like, whoa, 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 hold, hold the fort. Let's talk about where bad things come. He says, he, no, he says, do you think that because they suffered that they were worse than you? He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, You'll perish just like they did. Or the 18 who were killed when the tower fell on them. He's like, you think that's bad? How about these people that were just living their life? And like a, a, a tower fell. There's, 
There's no sin. There's maybe corner cutting. Maybe they didn't have the, uh, you know, the county or the city office come by and go, approved. You followed everything to the code. You know, maybe they cut some corners, but we're not talking about like somebody murdered somebody, right? Jesus just ups the ante and makes the conversation even harder between them. And again, brings back this idea of repentance, They're talking about suffering. They're asking how to avoid it. Or they're pointing out the sinners among them, taking the focus off themselves. And Jesus reframes the moment. He says, when you encounter hardship, the question isn't, what did they do to deserve it? When you encounter hardship, it's not, what did you do to deserve it? That's not the question. The question is, can you repent and turn towards life? Can you see the thing and instead of it, you trying to figure out who did it and how you can avoid it, actually take it as an opportunity for yourself to be confronted and go, you know what? Life has serious stakes. How I treat my neighbor actually matters. How I love God in my life actually matters. How I treat myself actually matters, right? You go back to the Shema or the Jesus Creed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors, yourself. How is this happening? And using it as an opportunity, as almost inspiration to, um, to take stock and accountability of your life and, um, and repent. Uh, and it's interesting when you get to a moment like this, sometimes you see things, right? There's a... a I know somebody who recently, um, who recently fell on the sidewalk. And when they fell on the sidewalk, no names, when they fell on the sidewalk, they were passed by or looked at or ignored by many, many people. They saw this person looking like a pretzel and did nothing or maybe made eye contact. What do we do when we see these kinds of things happen in the world? Well, it's very obvious what Jesus teaches, right? I mean, you think of the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan who's, who's, the, who's the, the, the ancient enemy, but not really. They're just, it's, the Samaritans are the northern kingdom. So 10 of the 12 Israeli tribes who went into, into, uh, into exile they were by the Assyrians and then came back sort of... Um, mixed with other nations. And so the, the, the southern tribes were looked at them with their nose up in the air like you're not, you're not pure bloods, right? It was, this, it was this brother versus brother, cousin versus cousin animosity. And so the Samaritans are the bad guy. You all know this story, right? The Samaritans walking, uh, or, or a man is jumped by some thieves. They steal some things. He's lying on the side of the road, and a priest, a Levite, um, pass by and are too busy doing things for God actually, to do anything. And then the Samaritan, the bad guy, comes by and then attends to this person's wound. And so that's the first thing. When we see somebody who needs help, who's hurting, when our eyes see that, Christ directs us to in some way, shape, or some, some way get involved. Now, like, that's where the discernment comes in. Because there are lots of ways to help. And like I was just teaching my 16-year-old, when he's driving on Hiawatha, um, I was like, listen, don't, don't go to the intersections by the medians. Because I've seen um, people there asking for help get physical with people who deny help. 
I've seen, and I'm like, I don't think a 16-year-old is, they're figuring out how to not run people over. Um, so like, right, but the part of the conversation was, later on we can talk about what you do when you see people who need help. But right now, the, the, the big picture smart thing for you to do is, is to do that. And then if your heart's moved, pull over and call me. Right? It's not like you, your choice is ignore them or pay attention. There are different ways to involve yourself. And there is discernment. So when you see that, right, that's part of being accountable is when you see someone hurting, we get involved. But what do you do when you see people hurting? And, or I'm sorry, you don't see them, but you hear about it. Or now we can see it, but it's a thousand miles away and you can't actually do anything about it. Right, and, and that's what I actually am reading here. It's like, well, you heard about those people. None of you were there, but you heard about them who were crushed by the tower or who Pilate mingled with the blood of the sacrifice. Like nobody was in the room when it happened, but they did hear the story of it. And so what do we do when we hear about these things? Well, we start wondering, you know, how do they get there? Whose fault is it? Blah, blah, blah. Jesus says, when you hear this thing, let it cause you, uh, move you towards repentance and this is, uh, this is what Hans Urs Balthazar says about this. He was a, a, a Jesuit priest. Um, he says, the only profitable lesson you can take from these reports, from these newspaper columns, and now we're starting to see where this moment touches ours. Anybody felt utterly in despair from headlines in the last two and a half, three years? What do you do? The only profitable lesson you can take from these reports is this. Be converted. Change your life. Turn 180 degrees. Not sometime in the future, either when it suits you or when the recession gets worse or food gets scarcer. These were written in 1960. Uh, when the recession gets worse, when the food gets scarcer. But turn now because it is God's time. Jesus is saying the very first thing, when you bump up to these things, let it, let it merge and urge you into changing, into taking accountability for your life, into thinking about what it is that God is asking, what it's the spirit of Christ pushing you towards, moving you towards, calling you towards. Don't wait until you're cornered to begin partnering with the spirit of God in you changing you and making you new. All right, so we've got, we've got the uh, yeah, but, the repentance, and now we're going to um, the third section here called heresy. And now I want to warn you in advance, this may ruffle some feathers. Uh, and that's just, that's just the way of Scripture. If Scripture isn't ruffling your feathers, I don't know what we're reading. So now we come upon a super real-world example of what's happening in here, this war on Ukraine. While there are surely really important, difficult questions for us to wrestle with as we see this thing, right? What should our response be? Calling our local representatives and continuing to urge for a no-fly zone. I, I, you know, I don't know that that's a good thing. Is it? I don't know. Uh, praying for the weapons to stop working. I mentioned this last week. Um, I'm a part of some text chain and started hearing stories about um, f like military weapons functioning on the battlefield, just not working. 
Guns jamming up because they're old, because uh, they don't know what they're doing with them, or because, as this person was suggesting, it was the Spirit of God participating in it and stopping it. Um, praying for our wisdom, uh, for our leaders to seek wisdom and find creative ways to solve these problems. My heart's broken because we have the Russian people who are like, it's hard to find bread. And like, they didn't do anything. And Mike, you know, like, while it's not violent, um, also, here's my question domestic uh, abuse reports, have they gone up? Since all of the financial sort of, you know, like what sort of, what sort of environments are families living in? Is this really going to help solve the problem? We need creative, creative ways to solve this. Um, Praying and lament, like we don't lament well. We get angry and we expect it to be changed because, you know, but we, we move past the stages of lament and lament doesn't feel very powerful or, or very, doesn't feel like it does something. I think that's maybe why I speed by it. I don't know, I don't know you. Um, right? and, so, and, then, and then the questions, too, are like, well, how did this happen? And it's not bad to wonder how we got here. Because, you know, those who don't know the past are doomed to repeat it, and those who do know the past are doomed to watch everybody else repeat it. Um, I think that's how that one goes, right? So, so, I, so I think there are... What I don't want you to misunderstand me saying is there's nothing practical to do or learn here. I'm not saying that. But I think one of the things we skip over when we go to that is what it says to us about us. Has, have we recognized the, the, the evilness of war? I mean, just the stories. I'm not going to repeat them because you've heard them. But have we, have we recognized how terribly evil war is. Have we maybe recognized our national love affair with it? I mean, think about the song we sing every time we get patriotic. The bombs bursting, like there's a celebration. I told you I was gonna ruffle some feathers. There's a celebration of war in our national anthem. And the bombs bursting in the, you know, is proof. The proof isn't humans are violent. Repent. The proof is our flag was still there, baby. Right, right. To me, the most obvious proof is that we have done too well at learning war. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. He, he imagines a day in the spirit. He imagines a day where our, our weapons will be turned into uh, plowshares. They'll be used to learn how to farm the ground. And then, and then he says, and no longer will they learn war. So I'm afraid if I'm ruffling your feathers, it's scripture, thankfully, not I. But okay. The bombs bursting in the air, like we have a love affair with, the, with, with, with war. I'm going to prove it. You know what these are, right? These are mine from childhood. I love these things. Little army dudes, right? I got a tank in here. Now, as a four, five, six, seven-year-old, when I saw a tank, it was always in the movies or in my G.I. Joes or in these. 
So I'm like, cool, tanks. What do you think a three-year-old living in Kiev thinks of tanks right now? If these toys were dropped off over there, how might they see them? What, what do these things do in a child? How do they form a child? My dad to this day, uh, and I, like, I don't, this is complicated, but like, he, I love, when I was a kid, I loved airplane, fighter airplanes because of him. Like the F-16s, the F-14s, those are super cool. Top Gun, it's one of my favorite movies. He'd always cover my eyes during that one part, you know, when, it, when the screen got blue. Um, but it was like, oh. And I learned to love these things from my dad. And it's interesting, uh, the last, time I, the last time I was having a conversation with my dad, he was just like going on and on about the F-22s and like, I don't know, I, didn't, like I had to like look it up. Um, but it's this really interesting thing to notice that our culture glorifies war. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe it's not so cool after all. Children, when I was a child, I was most certainly not allowed to solve problems with violence. Nobody was ever like, this is what you do. You hold them down and you hit their nose until blood comes out. And if that happens, you've solved your problem, right? Nobody ever told me to do that. No parent ever told their child that maybe the exception is when the bully won't absolutely leave you alone, sometimes you gotta pop them and then they'll leave you alone, all right? So there's, it, this is a little more complex than the black and white, I'm, you know, but, right? Are we don't, as children, we're not allowed to solve that way. Parents don't let children solve it that way. Any of the places where adults are in charge, we never say violence is the way to solve a problem. Because we know that it might, if it even solves the moment of it, it's gonna come back. But we all struggle to bat an eyelash when we see our governments choosing war as the way to solve our problems. When we see what's happening in our world, maybe the first thing before we start moving to practicalities, what can we do, how can we do it, is to go. We repent of war. I want to read this. Uh, Pope Francis read this earlier this week. It's a prayer from, that was written by the Archbishop of, um, of Naples. Forgive us for war, Lord. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, born under the bombs of Kiev, have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, dead in the arms of the mother in Kharkiv, have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, and the 20-year-old sent to the front line, have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, who continues to see hands armed with weapons under the shadow of the cross, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us that 
If not content with the nails with which we pierced your hands, we continue to drink of the blood of the dead who are torn apart by weapons. Forgive us our hands that you created to protect, but we've turned into instruments of death. Forgive us if we continue to kill our brother. Forgive us, Lord, if we continue to kill just like Cain killed Abel. Forgive us if we continue to justify cruelty with efforts, if with our pain we legitimize the cruelty of our actions. Lord, forgive us the war. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we implore you to stop the hand of Cain. Enlighten our conscience. Let not our will be done. Do not abandon us to our own doing. Stop us, O Lord. And when you have stopped the hand of Cain, also take care of him as well for he is our brother. Oh Lord, stop the violence. Amen. This week I heard um, somebody say, the most dangerous heresy is our belief that God and vi- God is violent and endorses our violence. We don't, I mean, we don't talk about heresy much. It's an interest, I mean, I don't know, I can't remember the last time I said heresy or heretic in church. Um, mostly think it's unhelpful. But I thought this was, this was deeply, this moved me. The most dangerous heresy is our belief that God is violent and endorses our violence. And if we just think about the life of Christ, it's completely and thoroughly nonviolent. He doesn't lift a hand. He doesn't lift a finger. He doesn't lift a sword. There's that, uh, there's that moment in, in, I think it's in the Gospel of John, where he says, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could call legions of angels down? He could have met force with force, violence with violence. He chose a different way. And our invitation is to pick up the cross and follow him. The most dangerous heresy is our belief that God is violent and endorses our violence. All right. Uh, Now we've come to the last part of the sermon here, which is the parable part, the parable of the fig tree, which if you want to look at, I'm going to read it here real quick. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to just offer us two different interpretations of it or two readings of it. And this is the best thing about parables is that you could have, you know, a hundred different ways to reasonably read it. And most of the time, Jesus doesn't give you the like the Rosetta Stone, the key to like figure out what it is. And you never really know, did you push one of the ideas too far, you know, or did you hold it close enough? So there's, I got two readings here that I think are, I think are helpful and fit with what, what has happened here. So uh, I mean, let me read it again. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, see here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I still find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting in the soil? He replied, sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, then you can cut it down. All right, so who's who here? 
right? Um, the person, so there's three, there's three characters, there's three things that are taking place in this parable. You have the person with the fig tree planted in their vineyard. Now, I think it's really important to notice when Jesus told stories, he talks about masters and kings and servants and rulers, right? He uses all of these descriptions. And while we might immediately think of the person who had the vineyard with the fig tree in it to be a ruler, a master, a king, a queen, you know, whatever, like some sort of high up person, that's not who Jesus says it is. He just says it's someone it's a person, not a ruler, not a king, not a master. This is a regular person. This is a, this is a person that's distinct in the story, but not of massive importance in the world at large. All right, and then this person has a gardener. So there's a gardener in the story, and then there is the fig tree, which, by the way, the fig tree is the national, right? It's like the bald eagle. So Jesus is talking here. He is provoking... Um, nationalism in Israel. He's, you know, um, fig trees are one of the national symbols of Israel. So here's, my, here's a first reading for it. It is uh, God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, right, is the gardener. Think about that, right? Like even in, in John, in the resurrection, when um, Mary sees Jesus out of the tomb, she confuses him with a gardener. And where does God place humans at the very beginning? In a garden to work and till it, right? So we see God already sort of taking on the role of gardener at the very beginning of scripture. And I think gardening is very much how Jesus, one of the ways he understands what he's doing. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me and I will remain in you, right? This image is understandable for them and is very connected with how scripture talks about these things. So I would, the first reading would be that, that God um, is, is the gardener and we are the impatient person who has a vineyard and a fig tree. I mean, think about it that way. We're the ones saying, when will it grow fruit? When will it happen? I'm sick of waiting. I'm gonna chop it down. And then you have, you have Jesus saying, Wait, wait. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion over all that he has made. Right, that, when I first read the parable, I was like, all right, so God's sick and tired of waiting for me to get my life together. Uh, that seems like a pretty fair reading, Right? My guess is that it was probably maybe your reading too if you were thinking about it, right? And I think it's a fair way to think about that. But what we have to remember is God is patient with us, far, far more patient than perhaps we deserve and maybe far more patient than we would like him to be. We would like God to step in and stop some things, please, thank you very much. Be slow to anger, right? And, and, and if we are the fig tree, well, that makes sense because we are meant to bear fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, uh, 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 gener kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that we're meant to bear fruit. So that's one way to read it, right? We are the impatient person with the fig tree in our yard. We want some fruit, and it's not happening, so we're like, cut it down, and God says, yo, yo, slow your roll. Calm down. 
practice some patience. You know, it doesn't grow in a day. And by the way, you've been trying to keep the manure off your life. It actually helps it grow. It smells bad. So I'd offer that as, as one reading. Um, another one. So we have here, God is still the gardener. Um, and we are still the person with the fig tree. All right, so we're the, as far as I'm concerned, we're the impatient one in the parable. We're the ones that's going, let's go, let's go. And in this one, but God isn't just the gardener, but God's also the tree. And this really fits with how Jesus actually talks about it, right? Um, I am the true vine. Uh, my father is the keeper of the vineyard. All right, so, right, the tree, the gardener, and he cuts off every branch that doesn't bear fruit. He prunes it to make it even more fruitful. So we have this life, we have this garden, we have this vineyard. I do, you do. And the life of God is growing in there. But it's, again, not growing fast enough. And Jesus is the gardener who's tending our life. Who, yes, is, is fertilizing it. Pruning it. And, you know, if we put all these things together... You hear Jesus right like before this, like at the like in Luke twelve, he's he's inviting people to accountability. And like most humans, they don't want that. No, thank you. I don't like it. It's not my favorite thing. Um. And so they do what you do. You like, yeah, somebody else plank in their eye. And after he kind of goes through this and calls them to repent, he reminds them of God's patience, God's loving kindness, that yes, we are called to bear fruit, but God is much, much more patient with us than we think of. And when we experience pruning, when we experience parts of us getting cut back, uncomfortable moments, when it's God that's pruning our life, love is the motive. Love is the end, not punishment, right? Not like the man who owns the field in the parable saying, all right, one more year and that's it. And this is, this is the way it works. We're invited into new life, into changed life, a life that Christ changes but we don't do it to get love. It's what comes out of being loved. All right, we're gonna take a moment here to be still. Um, the kids will come back up, which will, is why we call it stillness, not quiet. Uh, and then after that, we'll come to the table together. So if you're at home, this would be a great time to grab your communion stuff. Um, if you're here, uh, we have communion right up here. We have little packets you can grab for, uh, for communion up there. Um, and we practice an open table here. So um, you all are welcome to come to Christ's table this morning. <laughs>